Hello and welcome back to On The Mend. It's been a while, right? I am back. I'm very, very pleased. I've been on tour with my band, so um, I've been a bit out of action for a while. But we are back. We are ready. And boy, have we got some goodies coming up. In this series, I'm going to be taking a look into the world of mental health, addiction and recovery and how people get through hard times. My guest today is the one and only Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. Yes. Now, Rongan has practiced medicine for over 20 years and believes that good health is accessible to all of us. His goal is to change the way we look at illness, and he shares his expertise and learnings on his own incredibly successful podcast, Feel Better, Live More. I was actually a guest very early on in his podcast, so um, it was good for him to return the favor and let me interview him. I had the privilege of going to visit him in his home, and we had a really in-depth chat. I hope you find it as interesting to listen to as I did recording it. Hello, Rongan. Welcome to On The Mend. Hey, Matt. How you doing? I'm really good, man. I'm really good. Mate, thanks so much for having me over. I really appreciate it. It's lovely here. Oh, mate, I'm so chuffed you came over. Mm. I'm, uh, I was thinking how you do it, actually, after the gig last night. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I, I always think about how are you going to switch off after playing? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of saying um, uh, I've recently bought a PlayStation, which is a new thing for me. I've never really been into computer games. And um, I, like, I always wanted one when I was a kid, never yeah. had one. And then I remember when we first moved into a flat, me and James, we started the band, we bought an Xbox. Right. And I'd just um, stay up, get stoned, and play Xbox for hours. <laughs> and, um, and that lasted about six months, and I haven't had one since. But I need something after the show, because yeah. um, after the show finishes, I'm so wired and so kind of like energetic still, and I kind of, I don't want to go and sit in the bar with everyone. You know, I go down, I say hello for half an hour, then I go back to my room, and I play Spider-Man for about two hours. I love it. Swinging on spider webs through New York City. And it's just like, it's a complete switch off. You know, it's like it's like me in a different little zone. Then I'm tired and I fall asleep and it's yeah. great. Oh, I love it, mate. I'm yeah. glad you found something that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not sure how long it'll last, but it's uh, at the moment it's doing me all right. Yeah, nice. Yeah, man. But it's um, but mate, it's so good to be here. Do you know, I really feel like I'm, I needed this. You know, I love the fact it's in your home. I love the fact I've got to come and see your house. It kind of feels a bit more like a, like, Touring is a really weird experience. It's kind of like, because it's not really like anything else, but it hasn't ever changed. You know, like, I feel like everything else in the music industry has completely changed. Like everything else, the way we do everything, the way everything's structured is completely different. But touring is exactly the same. Like, but you're not the same person, are you, that yeah. you were, let's say, 20 years ago? Exactly. So I'm, yeah. I know you're going to be interviewing me, but yeah, I yeah. Can't, I'm so intrigued as to how your relationship to touring is different now compared to 20 years ago. Because yeah. you say nothing's changed in the way bands tour, mm. but you're not the same person, are you? No, no, that's what, um, and, and I was, if I'm honest, I was quite worried about that. Because, um, you know, touring has been a re-episode of relapse for me in the past. Mm. You know, and I kind of, I get kind of carried away with it. I kind of, um, you know, it's it's strange. Like I'm, I'm talking to you now under this hat, it's very, very much busted hair and I've kind of morphed back into this guy from busted which is um which is uh my wife was quite scared about as well because she kind of goes you um you step into those shoes again and those shoes have damaged you a lot in the past you know and um damaged us you know and I was very aware of that and I am and I was scared of that I really was you know but um I am um, uh, so I went into this with very strict parameters of what I will and will not do you know, and um, I have a really strong recovery program now. Like I speak to addicts every day. I um, I do this podcast. I do, I'm I work in the kind of addiction space, and um, 
and I'm very passionate about it. And so I kind of came with very strict um, kind of things of what I will and will not do. I will not sleep on the bus, you know, which is one thing which we've always done in the past. And that's when bad decisions are made. I don't think any good decisions are made past 1 a.m. in the morning, you mm. know. And when you're on a bus, when everyone's partying, like it's just, a, and you can't get away, you know, it's just very hard. So I was yeah. like, right, I don't want to sleep on the bus ever. Um, I um, I don't want drugs around me, which was um, which was one rule that I was very adamant about. I was like, I don't really, booze doesn't really enter my head ever, but there's something about the instant mind-altering effect of drugs which still triggers me. And it's not like I want to do it, but it makes me feel uneasy. It makes yeah. me feel scared and I feel vulnerable around it. You know, and plus it's boring listening to people high. You know, it's so, it's so boring. When you're sober. When you're sober, it's yeah. just like, oh my God, you know, like, um, and I've been that guy who's bored people to tears, being high off his face, talking about himself for three hours, you know. And, um, <laughs> loudly. And I, loudly, loudly. No, more about me, please, more about me. You know, so it was, um, it was a very, and I just set these rules and everyone has been so accommodating for them. Like we've got a really tight little group of people. We've got, we've also changed management companies and we've got, our first original manager who started the band with us. Wow. He's back on the scene, he's American, and he's got a team of um, a few people. There's two people on the road with us all the time, a girl called Evie, a girl called Joe, and they're checking in with me daily. You know, oh. are you okay, everything all right, anything we can do? And, um, and everything's great, it's really good. And I, lo I love hearing that, Matt, and mm. you know, when I hear that, it brings up something for me that I think about a lot, which is we all, assess our behaviors don't we as humans you know what are we doing are, are we addicted to anything let's say mm. but for me a behavior really depends on the energy behind that behavior yeah. so what's driving us to that behavior like mm. is it one of let, let's take alcohol for a minute okay i'm yeah. not talking about someone who's got a huge addiction problem yeah. but someone who potentially is consuming a bit more than they want to and they realize it's affecting their sleep and their their mood and their relationships like I think there's something very different if you're drinking alcohol, let's say, half a bottle each mm. night to help you numb the loneliness in your life or the or the yeah. discomfort you have in your life. I think that's very different from intentionally hanging out with some good friends and having half a glass of red wine as part of a, a bonding ritual, let's say. Yeah. I think yeah. the energy behind it is is ultimately what determines whether that substance or thing has a positive or negative impact on you. Yeah. And so I think about you touring now, 20 years on, from, or, or, you know, a couple of decades on from when you were first doing it, and you're approaching it with a different energy. So you yeah. can still go on stage, have fun, enjoy yourself, but actually it's coming from a different place. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for, for me, it, it became, everything was about post-show. Yeah. Like really, <laughs> the show was the key to the after party for me, you know, and like, um, and that was what I lived for in a way, was kind of like getting myself um, a little bit in a certain zone so I could get through the show. Cause I used to, uh, I struggled with incredible nerves and like, I was so nervous and so terrified to go on stage that I felt like I couldn't do it unless I was drunk. You know, I couldn't do it unless I had something in my system, you know, and, um, and then that would just lead to more and more and more and more. Yeah. more. Whereas I, I, I still feel those nerves, I still feel them, but I know what they are. 
And I'm like, um, like it's like the Chimp Paradox book. I kind of read that and it made yeah. so much sense to me. I'm like, I know what that guy is. I know who he is. And he's trying to help me in some way. He's trying to protect me. Yeah. But it's not helping the way I want it to. You know, so I know what that is. I know the first song. Like we start with a song called Air Hostess and it starts with the bass riff. Yeah. And I am, my hands are shaking before I start that riff. Even today. Even today, because it's like, it all stands to me. Like I hear the hi-hat. And I'm like, right, do, 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 do. And my hands are shaking. Like, I never get it completely right ever because I'm so nervous. But then once that's done, I'm like, whew, here we go. You know, and it's like, and I'm into it. Isn't know? it nice though that you can do that without needing to take something? Yeah, completely. Because you probably thought 20 years ago you had to take something to do yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I'd never be able to do it sober. Yeah. And I know? think many people have that feeling. If I, if I reflect on patients I've seen over the years about certain behaviors that they think well i need that yeah in order to do this behavior yeah more often than not we don't we we think we do we're habituated we yeah. we, we get used to using a certain substance to do something and think that's the only way absolutely and this is not quite the same example but i know obviously we, we i say obviously we know uh we met in in chamonix in france Many many years ago, almost twenty years ago. Almost twenty years ago now, yeah. Yeah, after buses split, and yeah. I was playing with my band yeah. in Chamonix, and you know we used to have fun and have some drinks, and you know it was you know we were young, single, and you know playing out in the Alps, and it was it was brilliant. Yeah. And then literally about three four weeks ago, I haven't played with those guys for about three years, maybe four years, and we were playing at a mate's wedding. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, you know Luke really well, and um, Luke was getting married. He wanted us to play, and in the build-up to that, I was thinking, oh wow, you know, when I used to play with the guys, would always drink or do a couple of shots before we went on stage, yeah, yeah. and I was thinking initially, well, our job is to get everyone rocking and dancing. Can I do that sober? Yeah, because I don't drink anymore. Like, yeah. not I wouldn't say I've had a drink problem personally. I realized about four or five years ago, I, I just just don't want it anymore. Yeah. Like I don't need alcohol in my life. I feel better without it. Yeah. And initially in that week, I thought, oh, maybe I'll just have a shot with the guys for all time's sake, you know, and then we'll get on stage. Then I thought, no, I, I really don't want to. So I, I did yeah. it all sober. Yeah. And I still enjoyed it. And people were still up and dancing and rocking. And it's, do you know what I mean? It kind yeah, of teaches absolutely. you that oh, I don't need something in order to do this. C completely, but I think you're so right. We become so ingrained into a behavior and a habit that becomes like, it's almost like a ritual in yeah. a way. Like like we need this because this does this only happens if I do this. And that's the preparation or something for it. It's like my daughter's 14 and she was going to a party and she told me that some people had had a couple of drinks before they went to the party. They're 14, 15 years old. I was like, and I was doing that when I was 14, 15 years old. I was so proud of my daughter for telling me, you know, because um, I wouldn't have never told my parents anything yeah. like that. But she was like, and they had a few drinks before they came to the party, you know. And um, I was like, oh, that's, that's what you did. You know, that's kind of like you were like, right, let's get in the mood for the event, you know. But the yeah. event is the event, you know. It's like, why do you have to, why do you have to numb your experience by something to enjoy something, you know, it's it's a very weird prospect, isn't it? Yeah. You know, whereas actually, um, like I I I have a few moments in the show where I where I stand back and really absorb what's happening, and I never did that in the past. Well, what does that mean? You you sat back and absorbed it. Um, I stand away from my mic when I'm not singing and I'm playing, and I look and I try to engage with what is actually happening because I'm so focused on 
playing well, singing well, doing the job well, that sometimes I forget the experience that I'm having with everybody. You know, I'm so I'm so focused on making sure that everyone's having a great time and putting everything of me into them yeah. that I forget to enjoy it in a way. Yeah. You know, I am enjoying it, but I forget to absorb the moment. And every night on this tour, I've stepped back and just taken a breath and kind of looked at everybody and just gone, wow, this is an incredible experience I'm having right now. I want to remember it forever. You know, and I've done that every single night. That last night in Manchester was um, like the, I would always call it the MEN, but I can't remember what so it was. So would I, now. actually. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. It was, it was the 9X before the MEN, I think. Oh, was it I, I, I grew up uh, around here, so yeah, yeah. I, I kind of used to go. Yeah, yeah. It was called the 9X, and it was the MEN, but it's yeah. something else now. It's such a massive, amazing yeah. arena, and it's so high that you forget, like, I keep having to remember that there's all these people there. And um, but it blows my mind sometimes because I'm like, who are you? Yeah. Like, what's your life like? Why do we mean something to you? You know, and that's what I'm I'm really taking away from this. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, wow, like we like this is a moment that we're all sharing together. Let's really share it together rather than me give you something and you know, it's it's not a give and take thing. It's a it's an all in it together kind of experience. It sounds like you're just really intentionally paying attention now. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think it's something we, we don't do enough. Mm. We pass through life. We're using substances, even caffeine sometimes, right? Yeah. But let's say alcohol. Mm. I think m- many people know the feeling of having a wicked night with their mates yeah. when they were drinking, but you don't actually remember that much of it. Completely. You have to relook at the photos the next day to remember where you were sometimes. Yeah. And we've all been yeah. there, but it's it's kind of... Again, I'll be thinking a lot about this because one of my best mates got married recently and, you know, I was best man. So I was thinking about a speech and what I was going to say. And it's funny, a lot of those kind of heavy drinking days and partying at uni or in your 20s. Yeah. You don't quite remember details. No, no, which is a certain irony to it. Yeah, com- completely. You know, like, um, um, which kind of a, a weird, a weird turn on that is because like when I first got into drugs, ecstasy was the thing that grabbed right. me. Um, because we were we were very young and we were from a very kind of working class area and we'd work all week to afford um, one night out of the weekend and we'd go to this place called Bagley's in King's Cross and um, I'm actually shooting my podcast in next door to where Bagley's oh, was wow. now, which is so strange for me because I get off the train, I'm like, oh my God, I remember coming here. And, um, and that was, um, and I look back at those times and me and my mates never ever like showed any affection towards each other we just ripped the shit out of each other and kind of piss yeah. take you know but we go to these races and we take this chemical and we love each other you know <laughs> and we would tell each other we love each other you know and i rem- and I, I never really thought about those moments and um i remember very vividly one of my friends um i didn't know him that well he lived a little while away from us yeah. he came with us and um and he had this experience on mdma and he he was so overwhelmed with love and he'd never felt it before you know and he was grabbing me and looking in my face and going i fucking love you like this and like he was just like so he didn't know he'd never felt love before and it took this thing to kind of show him it and he was so embarrassed and weird about it forever after that night because he never knew how to express or you know i was like i felt so and i never thought about it for years And I was like thinking about it recently. I was like, wow, man, that must have been such a 
intense experience for him. You know, it was such a, and it took this chemical for that to happen to him. You know, but um, but it happened, and I'm I'm sure it changed him in some way. I don't know how I got onto that, but it's um, it's an interesting experience, kind of seeing this from the band's point of view and looking at these people who are reliving. Like this is the nostalgic tour. This is a yeah. celebration of twenty years, and I think what what I think we've been what we've been seeing nightly is the is the kind of passion from people to relive a time of their life when they weren't in the life they are in now. Yeah. And um, I don't necessarily think they don't like their life, you know, but they're reliving a part of their life when they had no stress, no worries, no, you know, they're reliving that childhood moment, which is beautiful and innocent and, and they're acting innocent and beautiful and youthful. You know, and it's just, um, it's a really, it's a really, I'm welling up, it's a really emotional yeah. experience for me to see. You know, and there's groups of guys, like bearded men together, hugging, crying, at oh. sleep with the light on. You know, I'm like, <laughs> what is happening here? You know, it's such an amazing experience. But um, yeah, I mean, people won't realize that we've known each other for a really long time. Yeah. You know, and um, I mean, I think back to the guy I was when you met me, and um, and we've known each other years now, you know, but like, that was a really difficult time for me in my life because I was kind of, um, I was taken by my tour manager, Adam, out of London because I was on a downward spiral. And so he thought to take me to a ski resort because she might be active and doing something, yeah. not realizing that's a really good place to get pissed. You know, and, um, and I just had yeah. the most amazing time, but I met you and, um, and, I, and I had this, um, um, I don't know, I, think, I, felt, I always felt there was something different about you. Really? You know, I always felt there was something about you which, um, which resonated with me because you were, you, I mean, and you were young, you were single, you were, you were having a drink, you were, you were in a band, but you had something about you which was together. And, um, oh, wow. and I was always very, um, very, uh, not envious, but very drawn to it, you know? And I think um, like from your, from your life, what was happening in your life at that point? So you were, you were a doctor at that time. Yeah, I mean, Matt, this is so interesting for me. No one's ever said that to me, right? right. And it's, it's, um, it's got me really reflecting. So this was back in 2005. Yeah. So the context like the background to this is that I qualified as a doctor from Edinburgh Medical School in uh, June, July 2001. And right. I've been working for a few years, I moved back to the Northwest from Edinburgh uh, to help look after my dad, who was really unwell at the time. And, you know, I'd come out of a, a long relationship um, quite suddenly. Mm. And I was working, I'd finished my specialist exams at the time a little bit early, and I was missing music. Music was always a big part of my life. You know, yeah. I, I grew up, I was playing four instruments. I, you know, all throughout medical school, we were playing gigs around Edinburgh and Glasgow. And we'd all left and gone to different parts of the UK, you know, doing our jobs or whatever. And for some reason, we decided to get back together and do a ski season in Chamonix. So we all either quit our jobs or took unpaid leave, depending on what we were doing. There's four of us. And we went out to Chamonix for... And you were all medical professionals. No, my bass player, uh, Karen, uh, was a doctor out there in right. Chamonix, which right. is why we went there. Right. Um, he was one of the first guys I met at medical school. So he was an A&E doctor and a helicopter doctor there in the mountains. Right. So he was our bass player. Uh, the drummer, Graham, was playing... Uh, he, he used to work for a bank in right. um, Edinburgh. So he took some unpaid leave. And our guitar player, I, th I think he was in between jobs. Right. But we all went out basically, and you know, yeah. look, 
most of us were young and single. We'd never been out to the Alps before. Mm. And suddenly we're in this beautiful town. We're playing at ski gigs four to five nights a week. And they're packed. They're they packed. packed. People are dancing. You know, I'm the front man in the band. Yeah. Um, you know, part of your, how can I put it, <laughs> payment, as it were, yeah. was in booze. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we got a bit of cash for playing. But you could also have unlimited booze when you were playing. Yeah. So, you know, we used to have a joke within the band, you know, the more you drink, the, the more we're getting paid or something like that. Which right, is, yeah. you know, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, now looking back, it yeah, feels yeah. quite immature. But the truth is at that time, and I was, what, yeah. I was probably, what, mid-20s, 25, 26. Yeah. I'd been working for a doctor for a few years. Mm. We had a blast. It was just partying for three months basically yeah. you know we were playing yeah. it was a bit of a dream for me to be playing five nights a week i'd never done that yeah it was so hard on my voice wow i remember yeah. some days where in the day i just i couldn't talk to anyone yeah because i'd strained my voice so much the night before and i was just trying to preserve it so that i could get back on stage that night yeah, to yeah. play but it's interesting matt because i met you at the start of that season and we were just having fun basically mm. and you know partying and drinking a bit of skiing but it, it was great from a music standpoint mm. but I've reflected since then what that was all about and I honestly think I was unhappy right so it was interesting for me to hear you say that I gave off, off this energy that had it all together yeah and maybe part of me did but part of me also felt that I think I was running away right I think many people go out to the Alps for a, for a few months are running away from something, but I didn't know I was running away. Yeah, I think, I mean, you could unpick this a whole host of different ways, but there was a lot of pressure um, looking after my dad. He was really unwell. Um, I think I had some real issues of insecurity about who I was and what I was doing. Mm. And so, you know, how, do you, how did I address that? Well, if you're a loud front man on stage, right, where you're getting three, four hundred people dancing, you know, you're taking your top off on stage, getting the whole crowd worked up. Yeah. I think people would look at me and go, Oh, he's a really confident, he's a really extroverted front man. Yeah. And it's only in the last few years I've realized, no, I was insecure. I I needed the external validation mm. because I didn't feel good about who I was. But yeah. I didn't know that back then. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I did not know that was that yeah. that was who I was. Yeah. It's only now with hindsight that I can recognize what my behaviors were. And I don't regret it. In fact, the truth is, mate, I don't regret anything in life. Yeah. Because I've come to believe that regret, you can look at this many ways, but I believe regret to be an unhelpful emotion because regret to me indicates that I could have done something differently at that time. And I think regret in some ways is a very uncompassionate way of looking at ourselves. Mm. Right. I get that some people find regrets useful. I'm just talking about my own perspective, yeah. which is if I genuinely am compassionate with myself and believe that I'm always doing the best that I can based upon what I know, mm. I couldn't have done anything different in the past because yeah. if I could have, I would have, but I didn't. Yeah. yeah. So, And anyone and anyone that was, there's a really interesting thing. So I heard someone say, um, if someone, you can look at someone in, in any way, but if you were them, you would have done exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, you know. And it's um, and it's so true. We do what we what we do with who we are at the time, you know. Like um, that's why I've kind of um, uh, with me with with regrets, like um, with a 
a 12-step program, there's a certain thing when you write down resentments, harms, all these kind of things, and you make amends to people. And, um, and some of them go well, some of them don't go well, you know, but it's about cleaning up your side of the street. Yeah. You know, and I have done that for 95% of them. And there's some of them I don't think I ever can, but, um, but I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel, um, ashamed of myself anymore. I've done some horrible things and I've made people feel terrible and I've hurt people and I've made amends to those people where necessary, you know, and, um, and some of them, um, if I, if I can think about them too much and I can go into that part of resentment and that part of resentment towards myself, you know, it's really unhelpful for me and it, and it makes me less than, you know, makes me ashamed, you know, this cycle of shame kind of keeps repeating itself and it's, um, and it's not helpful. So well, I have shame, to learn to let that go. Shame is just awful, isn't mm. it? And yeah. I, it's interesting. I wouldn't say I've ever had an addiction. Like maybe you will say you've had a, an addiction. Yeah. But my friends will always say, my really good mates, hey, Ron, and you've always had an addictive personality. Yes. And I really thought a lot about this over the last years because I, I've done a lot of therapy, not because I had a problem or an addiction or a mental health issue that I needed help with. It's more because I'm always very curious. I'm curious about why do certain things, or in the past, why did certain things bother me? Yeah. Why does this situation trigger me? Why do I behave like this when this happens? Yeah. And so it was all after my dad died back in 2013 that I started doing a form of therapy called IFS, Internal Family Systems. And yeah. again, it wasn't for grief or anything like that. It was just to get to know myself better. Mm. And as I've gone through that process, I really feel I understand myself. Yeah. Like I, and now I can understand all my behaviors in the past and go, oh, wow, okay, you couldn't have done anything differently. Right? There's yeah. no point regretting it. Yeah, I agree with you that we need to take responsibility mm. and accountability for things that um, haven't gone so well or maybe if we've hurt someone unintentionally, yeah. we need to take responsibility for that. But I think we really need to take responsibility for ourselves. Mm. You know, like really be honest and say, we've done this and this is the impact it's had. Now look, if the other person is not ready to hear that or receive it, there's actually nothing we can do. Yeah. You know, yeah. we can't be taking responsibility when it's dependent on them accepting it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a really important thing for us to know. No, you do it because it's the right thing for you to do. You can look at yourself in the mirror, be honest, and go, yeah, you know what? That wasn't the best thing. But other people, if they're not ready, they're not ready. Yeah. And I think that's okay. That is okay. And you can still move on. Like you yeah. also, I don't think have to be, you or anyone, I don't think we have to be trapped in a in guilt and shame for the rest of our lives because of something we may have done. Mm. And that phrase you mentioned, that that is the phrase I would say that has led to me at the age of 46 now being more happy and more content than I've ever felt in my life is if you were that person, you would be doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, I, I love the phrase, Matt, because... Mm. It basically means that you start showing up into the world with compassion. Yeah. Right? Anyone. You can apply this to anything. Right? Even, let, let's go to an extreme. What about, what about if someone um, leaves a racist comment about me, mm. let's say? It's very yeah. rare, but let's say it was to happen. Yeah. You can still apply it in that situation. If I was that person with their upbringing, with mm. their parents, 
with the media that they were being surrounded by, with the bullying they had, mm. I would see the world in exactly the same way Absolutely. as them. Now, it doesn't make it right. Yeah. And this is a key point. It doesn't mean I have to accept that or think that it's okay. But if I go, yeah, I get it. I understand. If I, if I were him or if I were her, I'd be behaving in exactly the same way. I would honestly say that is one of the most life-changing phrases I live by. Mm. If I'm ever struggling with something or the actions of other people, mm. I go, wrong in a few of them, you'd be doing the same thing. And it just shifts your whole energy. You approach it with compassion. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I've done that to people who I've, you know, I, I, I find the stories that I've, I've played over and over in my head <laughs> for years about certain wrongs that have happened to me and I've blamed them. You know, I've gone like, well, this is why I'm the way I am. You know, it's because of this guy, you know, and he was horrible and blah, 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 blah. And then I go, actually, he was mistreated. You know, he was, he was, he was hurt. You know, he was acting in the way that, you know, and I, and I have forgiveness now because I don't have any relationship with these people. Yeah. I don't need to, but I can, I can relinquish that 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 feeling of of hatred which is it's just toxic you know it's it's a it's a horrible feeling you know and it, blame a- you know when when you relinquish that and you let that go and you go actually that was a person that was really hurt and harmed and they were doing something because it was it was it was in some way done to them you know and they were doing something which was uncontrollable for them you know then that relinquishes the pain on me yeah. You know, and I feel so much more okay with it, you know, and it's been, um, it's taken a lot of work to get to that. It, it does you take know? work, and but um, it's, it's something we can practice, you know, because ultimately, you know, hurts people, hurt people. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah. That's just the way yeah. it goes. Mm. And once you truly get that, mm. it, it really does change the way you experience life. Mm. Uh, and I think judgment Judgment, I think, generally is a very toxic thing for us to do as humans. I know, you know, we're wired a little bit to look at others and see what's going on with them. But I think as I get older, one of the things I really try and do less and less, and I think I'm pretty good these days, although, you know, I can have days where I do and I catch myself. I try not to judge other people. Yeah. Because I just don't think it's helpful. And I think judging others puts us in a in a slight victim mindset without yeah. realizing it. We we like to sort of get on our high horse a little bit and think, oh God, if I were them, I'd be different. I wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. It's not true. You would be. Yeah. yeah, yeah if you were them, you would be doing that. Yeah. And I just don't feel I feel like that's so important for people to hear. You know, that's such a thing that which is overlooked. You know, it's like we can we are so easy to judge people, but you're so right. If you were them, you would be doing exactly yeah. the same thing. And, and let's, let's tie this to physical health for a minute. This is not just wishy-washy, we should forgive people. There's really good research showing that people who struggle to forgive and hold on to anger and resentment, right, your blood pressure goes up. You're at increased risk of a whole host of other physical diseases like autoimmune disease, even some forms of cancer, right? now. Wow. I'm saying that with great sensitivity. Yeah. I'm not blaming anyone. Yeah, yeah. Right? Just to be so clear, because when you talk about this, it's very easy for people then to go into a blame mindset. Yeah. I'm not blaming anyone. Yeah. But there's some really good research showing these strong associations between our emotions and our physical health. Mm. And I think learning to forgive is one of the most important things we can do. Yeah. 
And again, if you struggle, that's okay. You can get better at it. Yeah. So one thing I do, um, I, I'd probably say for about five years, one thing I do in my daily life is I look for moments of what I call social friction, where something happened, someone bothered me, or there was a bit of friction somewhere, for whatever reason, you know, online, at the supermarket, while you're driving. And then I try and reframe it. Mm. And usually I can do it in a moment now, but if, if I did get triggered by something, then that evening I try and go, okay, what happened there? You know, why did you tell yourself this victim story about that? How can you reframe it now to tell a different story? Yeah. And it, it's just, what, what it does, it, it, you're no longer a victim to life. You're no longer waiting for the actions of other people and the behavior of other people to be a certain way in order for you to feel good. Yeah. You're like, no, it's all inside me. It's how I look at the world. It's how I, it's how I look at that situation that determines the impact. Yeah, you know, all events. Pretty, I was going to say pretty much, and some people will argue with this, but generally, I say all or most events are neutral. They're completely neutral. It's just the perspective we put onto them that determines the outcome. Yeah, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to that yeah and, and you know yeah. when i really learned this lesson and, and people often ask me Ronga, which was the most impactful conversation you've ever had on your podcast mm. and i've had so many wonderful conversations right so i find it hard to choose but it always tends to come back to this conversation i had with a lady called edith eager mm. i spoke to her when she was 93 years old i listened to that podcast i think about it all the time mm. It completely changed who I was. I was not the same person after as I was before because she yeah. was a lady who, when she was 16, got taken to Auschwitz concentration camp. Her mum and dad, her and her sister, you know, they just got a knock on the door. She was, you know, thinking about the date she had with her boyfriend that night and what dress she was going to wear. You know, a couple of hours later, they're in Auschwitz concentration camp. Within two hours of getting there, her parents are both murdered. And then she has to dance for the senior prison guards, like an hour or two after. And she said to me, you know, Rongan, when I was dancing in Auschwitz, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was in Budapest Opera House. In my mind, I had a beautiful blue dress on. There was a full house in the audience. The music was playing. And she said to me that I never forgot the last thing my mother said to me before she got killed, which was Edith nobody can ever take from you the contents that you put inside your mind, right? And she told me so much stuff about what happened in Auschwitz, about how she would look at the prison guards and in her head, she was like, no, they're the prisoners. In my mind, I'm free. They're the ones who are not living their life. Mm. And so I just learned so much from her to the point when the last thing she said in that conversation was, she said, Wrong and listen, I have lived in Auschwitz and I can tell you the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your own mind. And you said before, Matt, about all these stories that you've told yourself in the past. Mm. We all do that. We create these mental prisons yeah. that are not real. Mm. We become a victim to external situations and, uh, and um, we become a victim to the behaviors and the actions of other people without realizing that in most cases we can reframe it in our minds. Yeah. We can reframe a situation. We don't have to tell ourselves a victim story. Yeah. And if I'm ever struggling, Matt, honestly, I say to myself, hey, wrong and listen, if Edith could reframe things in the horror of Auschwitz, 
you can reframe this in your own life. Yeah. I mean, that's so that's that that's that's such an amazing thing to be able to do. You know, I think um, with mental health right now in the in in let's just stick to the UK. I've heard you say that maybe we need to relook at mental health in this country. In what way would you have us relook at mental health in this country? I mean, if we just take a step back mm. and look at the state of society at the moment, let's mm. call it in the UK. Yeah. People are sick, mm. right? Rates of anxiety and depression are going up year at, on year. At a massive rate. At massive rates. And, and yeah. we're talking here about just diagnosed stuff. There's mm. loads of people who, who, who maybe haven't gone in to get a diagnosis or yeah. have met the criteria for a diagnosis yeah. that are struggling. So we're experiencing chronic stress as a society that's having a huge impact on the state of our mental health. We absolutely need to relook at it. Mm. Um, I always have this sort of cl slight clash in my head over separating health into physical health and mental health because yeah. ultimately I don't really think there's a difference. Yeah. But I do also recognize that because we've prioritized physical health at the expense of mental health for so long, we actually have to give mental health the same weight. In what way do you mean, do you mean we've um, prioritized physical health over mental health? I think for, for many years, we've not really been that concerned as a society with what's going on inside someone. Like mm. on the outside, what's your weight? You yeah. know, um, you know, how much are you exercising? You yeah. know, what do your physical blood markers show? That's kind yeah. of, I feel, let's take exercise for example. You know, we, we push this narrative of we need to exercise more, which of course is important. We need to move our bodies more. But really I think we've missed the big picture of movement. Movement actually is who we are. Mm. You, arguably you need to move for your mental well-being more than for your physical health. I'm not saying it doesn't do anything for your physical health. Of course yeah. it does. But I think many people realize that movement changes your state. Yeah. It changes the way you feel. It's and arguably got more benefits up here yeah. than for anywhere else. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be some crazy hit workout on YouTube. That can be as simple as going for a walk, right? It, it really can yeah. be. And so I think we do need to raise awareness that we have a mental health crisis mm. at the moment. But also, I think there's two factors to really think about. One is we've got to accept that society is pretty toxic, Yeah. right? The way we're living in this capitalist society where it's sort of do more, you know, competes with others, uh, buy more, consume more, right? This is creating havoc with our mental health. Mm. I do think smartphones and social media are playing a massive role here. Absolutely. So we have to accept that. Hopefully that takes the pressure off people a little bit to go, you know, Gabor Mate talks a lot about this. Mm. If you, you know, if you were studying animals and they were all getting sick, right? You wouldn't be looking at what the animal's doing wrong. You'd look at, well, what what culture are they in? What, what society are they in? What's yeah. going on, yeah. right? And if we look, if, if you take a step back and go to space and look down, the amount of human beings who are feeling unwell at the moment is huge. Yeah. It's a cultural issue. Yeah. Right. But then the problem with going down that line is it's, it can be quite disempowering. Mm. If it's a cultural issue, well, what can I do? There's nothing I can do. And yeah. I'm all for empowering individuals. Mm. I would like to see societal change. I would like to see a fairer society. I would like to see. 
there'd be less pressure from works. And even at schools, frankly, the pressure that's been put on kids these days. I, and I see it, my son's 13 at the moment. I think, this is crazy. Mm. You know, at my son's school, I went to give a talk last year on stress. And they said, can you come and Dostashi and talk about stress management techniques for year seven and year eight? They're getting stressed out about their exams. All right, so this is 11 and 12 year olds. Yeah. Right, so I went in and I gave a 10, 15 minute talk but the elephant in the room is why on earth is there such pressure and stress around exams yeah. for 11 and 12 year olds? Com- completely. I mean, sure, I could give you breathing techniques and talk about journaling and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But why have we created that, that in the why, first place? Ex- ex- exactly. That's, that, that's the problem. So, um, so, so there's a cultural issue, but on a personal empowerment issue, there is so much that we can do ourselves mm. And of course, different people are going to find different things easier or harder. Mm. But you've got to understand, or people have to understand, that you cannot separate your physical health and your mental health, really. So if you move your body, right, you're going to feel better in your mind. You're going to feel differently. Yeah. Right? If you do some breath work, you're going to feel differently. If you have a cold shower, yeah. right, at the end of your hot shower, if you, if you turn it to 30 seconds of cold, for example, yeah. you're going to feel differently. Yeah. Right, your mind and how you feel about yourself in the world will absolutely respond to lifestyle behaviors. Yeah, if you can eat better, and you know, I know that can be hard depending on where people live and depending on their income, they can find it hard to eat healthily. Yeah, I get absolutely. that, but we have really good evidence now showing that if you can eat mostly whole foods, right, you can reverse depression in some cases, not all, yeah. but in some cases. Yeah, And so whenever I have a patient with mental health problems or who is struggling with their mental health, I'll always, A, spend time trying to understand them and what's going on for them in their life. And then I want to help them go, hey, you know what? You don't have to start running marathons, but why don't I help you maybe get 20 minutes more sleep each night or 10 minutes more movement each day or make a 20% improvement in your diet? Yeah, And I have seen so many people get better significantly better with just some very simple lifestyle choices do you find that's a hard prescription to give because um like i was going to ask you like say right say say i'm a patient and this is very individual for every individual patient but say i come into you and i go right i'm 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 struggling with my mental health i'm 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 stressed i'm i'm at a job that i hate you know my family is 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 draining you know i'm i'm snapping at my kids i'm I'm not being the person I want to be. I am. Um, I'm drinking too much. You know all these kind of things. I come to you, and I go, "What do I do?" Um, and I think most people will come to you, and the the kind of the kind of society we live in is that I want to take something to make myself feel better. You know, like, and that's kind of what we've kind of been taught in some way. Will will help. You know, but you're prescribing something different. What would you say to? to me if I was coming in with those lists of things. Yeah, so Matt, of course, I have to acknowledge that every case is different, mm. right? And and you can have 10 people coming in with those symptoms mm. and they may all need 10 different approaches, Yeah, right? And that's something I don't feel we have fully been taught as medical students. I was giving a keynote at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine conference just two days ago in Manchester. And one of the things I said to the audience was that the model we're taught at medical school 
works very well for certain things, in mm. particular acute problems. So we learn to take a history from a patient in a very detailed way. We then examine the patient and then we're trying to come up with a diagnosis. And once we've got the diagnosis, that's the kind of the bulk of the work done. Now we can just go to the treatments, yeah. right? And I'm saying that, that works great if you've had a heart attack or you've had a pneumonia, right? Yeah. And then we can give you the right treatments. But if you come in with these sort of symptoms, these mm. more, um, I won't call them vague, but not as concrete, they're, they're harder to put in a box. Yeah. In some ways, the diagnosis doesn't matter as much as what are the underlying drivers here. Yeah. Right. So, so someone's coming in, they're struggling. Whether we call it depression or anxiety, whatever else it might be, and that can be helpful. Mm. It can certainly be helpful to help people feel less alone, right? That they're not yeah. going crazy, that there is something there. But a lot of the times these labels can be really problematic because we we will then say, oh, you've got depression. And then the, the patient says, oh, I knew I had something. I've got depression, right? And that becomes almost part of your identity from then onwards. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I've always rebelled against that. For mm. me, it's a case of, okay, what is going on in that patient's life, which means they've got these symptoms. Can I help to identify with them what those things are? And can I find a few places to intervene? So the simple framework I use and that I teach medical students and doctors about is what I call the four pillars, right? Yeah. Four pillars of health, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation or, or stress. And it's a really beautiful framework for people to look at their own lives with because those are the four pillars, I would say, have the most impact on our health, but are also the four pillars that we have a fair degree of control over as well. Yeah. Right? Not all of them, but we, yeah. we have a fair degree of control over. And if anyone's listening to this, Matt, and is struggling in their life, I would say, which of those four pillars are you struggling with the most? Right. And most of us kind of know. Yeah. Right? Most of us have got, you know, so for me for many years, I would say, you know, the, the relaxation pillow is one I struggle with. You know, my yeah. food was pretty good, movement was all right, I'd prioritize my sleep, but, you know, managing stress is something in the past I found really difficult. Mm. And so what many of us do is we we try and work on our strongest pillar, like our, you know, let's say we're into good foods, right? Yeah. And our, our diet's already 80% good. We try and make it another 5% better, <laughs> But we ignore the fact that we're only sleeping five hours a night. I mean, this is my story. Yeah. yeah. So is, my yeah. approach is always like, listen, keep your diet the way it is. It's good enough, mm. right? Don't worry about that bagel or that croissant you're having out on a Sunday with your mates in a coffee shop. Yeah. I really need, I need to get you sleeping better at the moment. Yeah. Right? So if you came in with those sort of um, symptoms, I'd be trying to find somewhere to intervene that you also agreed with. So I'm not a big fan of giving prescriptions to patients in the sense that I, I see it as a partnership. I want to, I take it very seriously to connect with that patient to go, well, what is really going on here? Why is there so much stress in their life? Okay, you don't like your job. I get it. And, but you can't leave because it pays your bills. Okay, fine. I understand that. Well, is there something else you're doing in your life that you enjoy where you you do have that sense of enjoyment. And yeah. often it's like, often some someone like that could be a hobby, for example. Mm. I know this sounds really, really almost oversimplistic, but it really can be this simple. There's something that's going on that's driven them to come in. Yeah. Right? I just need to find some of the things that it is and yeah. then help them change it. So if you hate your job, but you can't leave, 
If you then are coming home by yourself, drinking, spending three hours on Instagram because you're so frustrated with your life, it's not going to help anything. Yeah. Right? So I, I might say, okay, well, what do you enjoy doing? And they might say, well, you know, I used to, you know, I don't know. I I, I, I used to play five-a-side with my mates when I was at school, but that was 20 years ago. Like, okay, well, could you do that now? Yeah. You know? And be like, well, I haven't done it in years. And, you know, and for someone, it might be like, okay, well, I could probably join a local five-a-side club yeah. and see how it goes. And I tell you, I had a, I had a, isn't quite the same case as what you just brought up, Matt, but I had a patient a few years ago, a guy in his late 30s. Now, he did enjoy his job, mm. right? He was an entrepreneur. He worked for himself. He ran his own business. Mm. And from the outside, his life looked great, right? He was driving a sports car. He worked for himself. It looked as though he was crushing life, right? Mm. And he came in to see me saying, Doc, um, sometimes I don't want to get out of bed. Yeah, I feel low in the morning. I feel a bit indifferent about things. Um, I have a real apathy over just getting up and getting stuff done. Yeah. And I just don't really enjoy myself much, right? And, so he, and he said, is this depression? And so we did some tests and I spent time with him trying to understand him. One of the questions I asked him, I said, hey, listen, how often do you see your mates? Yeah. Um, he said, oh, Doc, I don't have time, you know. Uh, and and he, was, he was somebody who was quite lucky in the sense that he still lived in the town where he grew up. So his mates were nearby, but he actually said to me, hey, Doc, I see what they're up to on Facebook or on Instagram, you know, but I don't get time to see them. And that's, I think, Matt, one of the ironies of the way we live these days is that we can almost see what our friends are up to, like we yeah. can see what they're eating, where they've been on a holiday, but we don't have to see them. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I know I've been guilty of this. Yeah. But with him, I really thought, I think this is the main issue for you. So I said to him, listen, if you, I don't know if you're up for this, but could you arrange to see at least one of your friends at least once a week for the next few weeks and I'll see you in six weeks? Yeah. And he was pretty desperate, right? So we said, yeah. okay, fine. Um, and I said, when you're with them, try and put your phone away so you're really present for the interaction. Now he comes back six weeks later he almost bounces into the room with a big smile. I said, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing great. I said, what happened? He goes, well, I did what you said, Doc. I started off every Sunday morning. We'd go to the local cafe, catch up, chew the fat over a latte, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And after a few weeks, we thought, hey, we haven't played five-a-side in years. Why don't we get back to it? So he'd, he'd only had two or three sessions on a Wednesday night. They all got together, local leisure center, playing five-a-side. Literally six weeks later, he's like a different person. Yeah. Right? So my question to him and to the wider public is, did he really have depression? His symptoms were consistent with a diagnosis of depression, but he didn't have an antidepressant deficiency in his life. He had a friendship deficiency. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So for him, and again, I'm not saying that's for everyone. For him, he was missing his tribe and his community. He, his life had become really isolated. Yeah. Where he was just working. He was doing emails all weekends. He was, you know, earning decent money for him. But he was missing this big part of him, mm. which was his friends and his community. Yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing him three, six months later. He's like a different person because what happened, it was what I call the ripple effect. Yeah. He realized how unfit he was because he couldn't play without being knackered. Yeah. So that encouraged him then to eat better and go to bed a little bit earlier. Yeah. Right? And before you know it, in six months, he's like a different person. Yeah. Did that make sense? Absolutely. makes perfect sense. You know, I, I think 
um, and, and the thing is, we, we, we hear the word hobbies, right? And we think that's, um, that's for people that aren't as busy as us. You know, like I don't have time for hobbies. Or I don't have time to yeah. make these things for myself, you know, when really you do. And it would be great if you did. Like, I mean, I've struggled with this with my wife sometimes because I've, I've tried to kind of force her into finding things that is for her because I do things for myself. And um, I think when I was first trying to find it for her, it was because I was feeling guilty because I had these things that I did, which made me feel better and made me kind of like grounded and a better father and a better, a better, a better husband and a better person. And, um, and she was amazing at all those things, but I didn't see her having these, these parts for herself. You know, everything, she's such a giving person, everything was about other people. And so she started doing Pilates, right? And, um, and she started doing reformer Pilates. And it became something she went, she was with a group of people, you know, they kind of did this thing together and it completely transformed her. You know, um, she, she, I saw her changing. Yeah, and, and what's, there's a couple of things that really important there, Matt, for me. One is she does it with other people. Yeah. And I think what happened over the last few years, and there was many benefits of Zoom and online classes, yeah. right? But one of the problems is, is that a lot of us have got stuck in ruts yeah. where people who used to, let's say, like yoga or Pilates, you know what? They don't need the hassle anymore of driving, getting parking somewhere and going to a class. They can do it online on their with their online coach, yeah, yeah. right? Or just do a YouTube video for 20 minutes. Yeah. And again, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But you are missing a big piece when you do it by yourself mm. and you're not doing it with other people. Yeah. And so a lot of the time when I'm talking with patients or I'm giving talks to companies and they say yeah, when, when people are feeling isolated and lonely, which is a big problem these days, mm. what can they do? One of the tips I say is, hey, listen, think about a hobby, right? And think about where does that hobby exist in your locality? Mm. Can you join a local class or club? Because yeah. you're immediately going to start connecting with people who have a similar interest to you. Yeah. And that's a great way to meet people, especially if you've moved away from your home and your friends for work. Like it can be hard and intimidating to Absolutely. meet people. Yeah, yeah. Many people struggle with that. So yeah. that's the first thing. The other thing was we also have to take the pressure off ourselves and recognize that the way we do things today is very alien. And what I mean by that is a lot of people are trying to bring up their families in nuclear families, mm. right? This is quite a new concept. We've never ever before as humanity had all these little nuclear families. We've always had our tribes around us. What do you mean by nuclear families? Nuclear families, so like, let's say a mum and dad and their kids in one house, mm. just them, Yeah. right? Because we're now living, um, we're now living, many of us, where we've, we've left where we grew up, mm -hmm. right, for opportunity. Yeah. Right? For a better job or whatever it might be. But that means then when we have kids, often our parents and our siblings and our friends live 50, 100, 200 miles away. Yeah. And so we're finding now that two parent families or single parent families probably even harder. Mm. It's too much to do it all yourself. Yeah. Right? So we, we forget about hobbies. Hobbies seems optional. Who's yeah. got time for hobbies when yeah. you're yeah. trying to get your job done, trying to look yeah. after the kids? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I think we also have to take the pressure off ourselves and go, this is hard. Yeah. It ain't easy doing mm. this by ourselves. So of course we're going to be struggling. Mm. Yeah. And that's so massive. I, mean, I kind of bring it back to, um, um, I remember watching something with Yahim Harry talking about 
um, the Rat Park experiment. Yeah. You know, back to uh, back to addiction for me. Like, um, um, so obviously you know all about Rat Park, but for listeners, yeah. they um, uh, there was lots of studies done about um, cocaine and heroin being the most lethal substances on earth. If you take them, you'll 100% become addicted to them. All they cause is addiction. And they did that because they put rats in cages and gave them two water bottles. And one water bottle had cocaine in it and the other water bottle had just water in it. And the rats would always come and they'd um, take the cocaine and they'd overdose on the cocaine and die every single time. You know, and some, um, I can't remember the, the scientist's name. Yeah. Do you remember his name? I can't um, remember it. I can't remember his name. But he was like, whoa, you're taking a rat, you're putting them on their own in a cage, isolated, and you're giving them a way out. Yeah. You know, and you're making, you're living miserably on your own and you're giving them something that numbs pain. You know, of course He's that's going to happen. Care. You know, and then, so what he did is he built Rat Park and he basically made the most epic place for rats to live on earth. He created a massive cage, lots of other rats, lots of community of rats. They could um, socialize, they could have sex, they could. They had balls and games to play, things yeah. to entertain themselves. And every water station had cocaine and or, or heroin, whichever test they were doing, and water. Some rats did the, tried the cocaine, but most rats never went back. Yeah. And most rats just kept on the water. They lived a great life. The cocaine was always there and they never went back to it yeah. because they had everything they needed to be a but community. The, the ingredients that we need to thrive were there. That the, yeah. the, the ingredients they need to thrive were there. Yeah. And in, in society today, certainly in the UK and in many Western countries, but frankly, I, I don't think it's limited to, to Western countries mm. anymore. We don't have those ingredients. No. And so we move towards these addictions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The addiction can be really extreme where, you know, we can't function anymore and we're sort of self-imploding relationships, whatever it might be. Yeah. But there's loads of low grade addictions, which maybe don't need, you know, a detox and a, and a, and a rehab center. Yeah. But they're affecting how people feel about themselves, Massively the quality of their, their lives. Life, yeah. And I, I remember another patient, Matt, a young man, I think in his early 20s. And I always remember this case because he came in to see me and he wouldn't look me in the eye. He was so ashamed, right? And he basically had a, an addiction to pornography, yeah. online pornography. He was a young man. And um, he said, Doc, I, I can't stop. It's, it's every day and I don't know what to do. Mm. And the fact that he couldn't make eye contact with me was a, a real giveaway already that there was a lot of guilt and shame there. Mm. I asked him, have you have you told anyone? Because I don't, you're the first person I've, I've ever said this to. So he, he hasn't shared this with anyone, right? So he's, he's tearing him up inside. He doesn't yeah. want to do it, mm. but he is doing it and he can't stop. Okay, an addiction. Absolutely. Certainly a form of addiction, right? Ticks every box. Yeah, ticks every yeah. box, exactly. And so I was trying to help him and figure out what was going on. And he didn't have any tribe or community, nothing, mm. right? And so we went through various options. I was trying to find out, you know, this is, for me, this is a symptom, Mm. This is not the problem. This is a symptom of the problem. Yeah. What is the problem? I think the problem is that he doesn't have these connections, these tribes. So therefore, a bit like Rat Park, he has this thing on tap yeah. and he can't resist. And it just so happened that the thing that appealed to him was to join a boxing club or a boxing yeah. gym, right? And he goes, yeah, I quite fancy that. So, you know, I gave him a few numbers and he, he joins a boxing gym, comes back a few weeks later totally transformed because what he gets in that boxing gym is tribe and community he loved yeah. it yeah and i always remember this thing he said to me matt he said 
before I would join a boxing gym, if someone said to me, do 10 press-ups, yeah. I might do none or, or one. Yeah. But in a boxing gym, 10 means 10. Yeah. Yeah. And, and literally over the course of a few months, he stopped using online pornography completely. Wow. Right? And that's what I often find when it comes to addiction or these addictive type behaviors. Not always, right? Some people, it's really extreme. They need to go and remove themselves from society, yes, right? Absolutely. To get proper help. Yeah. But for many of us with these low-grade addictions, we have to understand that these are symptoms. Mm. The problem isn't the addiction. Yeah. The addiction is a symptom of the problem. Yeah. And I would say to anyone listening, even if we take this out of addiction, if you've ever tried to change a behavior before in your life mm. and you've struggled, my bet would be is that you've not yet discovered what the purpose of that behavior was. Yeah. Because all behaviors serve a purpose. Yeah. Right? And often we try and change the behavior without understanding the purpose. Yeah. So, so let's say, for example, someone is drinking a little bit too much alcohol. Mm. And they think, you know, on New Year, right, I'm going to quit this year. I'm going to massively reduce how much I'm drinking. And they do like a dry January, right? Mm -hmm. Again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what often happens, and I've seen this so many times, whether it be alcohol or workouts or food changes, for the first week or two of January, they're fine. Mm -hmm. You know, they're no longer drinking or they've quit sugar, right? Yeah. yeah. But middle of January... You know, the weather's a bit crap. It's raining, it's cold, it's dark. They've had a stressful day at work. They've had to take the kids to after school clubs and they're running a bit late. Then the alcohol starts to slip back in because yeah. the alcohol is a way of coping with the stress in their life. Yes. So if stress is the driver for the alcohol intake, in many ways, there's no point saying, hey, guys, you got to, you know, the alcohol's going to affect your liver or do this for you. I think as doctors, sometimes we miss the point right we have to understand the behavior that's driving we mm. we have to understand what role that behavior is playing yeah right so if that's a stress problem i need to help my patient manage stress because if i can't help them manage stress they're going to always drink absolutely and i think yeah. we miss that and mm. I, you, we miss this all of us across society miss it in new year because we think we can white knuckle a new behavior yeah we'll quit alcohol we'll quit sugar without understanding why we have that in the first place. Yeah. And for many of us, just understanding why can be transformative. Ron, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Hey, Matt, it's been, thank it's you, been great catching up with the mics on. Thanks, mate. Always a pleasure. You too, thanks, mate. Mega, mega thanks to Dr. Ron and Chatterjee there for his time and his wisdom. You can find links to all his books and his podcast in our episode description. I advise you to listen to it. He talks to so many incredible people. He's got such a wealth of knowledge and, um, and he's just a great person to listen to. His, uh, his heart and his mind are in the right place. I really, really respect him. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, there are also links to guidance, advice and organizations that can help you there too. Please remember to follow and subscribe. Um, if you do, it really helps a podcast. It really kind of boosts us up. So if you do have the time to press the follow button or the subscribe button, then I really, really appreciate it. If you feel so inclined and you want to leave us a little review, that would be really great too. I'll be back next week where my guest will be the musician, Ren. Until then, bye for now.